Connecticut and Massachusetts, ZM Homes buys houses. Sell your property to the local guys. Needs repairs, updates, maybe foreclosure or inherited? No problem. We got you. Google or add us on Facebook at ZandMHomes.com. Musical podcast. Fourteen million albums. If selling that many records were that easy to do, everybody be doing it. But they don't. And they rarely do it by seeing traditional Celtic music. But Canadian singer Lorena McKinnett has. She's not only sold 14 million albums, she's been nominated for multiple Grammy Awards. She's performed before the royal family. She's been awarded a bunch of honorary degrees and distinctions. She's performed during the opening ceremonies of the 2010 Winter Olympic Games in Vancouver. And that's not even the half of it. Because I haven't even mentioned her 1991 album, The Visit, which went gold in the United States. And after all of that, she finally gets to be a guest on Baxi's musical podcast. Impressive? You bet. But here's the thing. Lorena McKinnett's musical career, while undeniably impressive, is almost as interesting as the story that got her there. This is a woman who has experienced a lifetime of heartbreaking loss, incredible success, a terrifying invasion of her personal privacy, and an eight-year-long hiatus from the public eye. And she still sold that many records. And yet, in spite of that, Lorena McKinnon is a tireless philanthropist who has raised millions of dollars for various humanitarian causes and charities. All of this while establishing herself as a giant in the folk and Celtic music world. Again, her appeal reaches far beyond that of traditional Celtic audiences. She has a profound influence in other genres, too, both goth and metal alike. Lorena McKinnon is touring the United States for the first time in eight years, including this week at the Chevalier Theater in Medford, Massachusetts, on Sunday, October 14th. What you're about to hear is the fascinating story of an amazing woman of enormous strength and generosity. And so it's a real pleasure to speak to the legendary Lorena McKinnon on Baxi's musical podcast. Hey, Lorena, how are you? I'm all right. How are you? Very, very good. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I've been uh, been doing a lot of studying up in the last couple of days to get ready. For <laughs> and uh, and I'm very excited about it because I was listening to the visit over the last couple, uh-huh. over the last couple of days. And, you know, to know that it's been 31 years since that came out and yeah. to have a record that literally sounds like it could have come out yesterday kind of shows the timelessness of that of that recording it it must be so strange for you to go back and think of things in 31 year intervals but 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 tell me about that about that record and what that's meant for you well it certainly was a milestone in my career up until that point i had produced uh and distributed three recordings outside of the framework of a major labels distribution arm and that was primarily focused on Canada. I did have a few distribution arrangements with folks in Spain and France and Netherlands actually before I signed with Warner but um, the visit was really the the one, the first one within the framework of the Warner Music Group internationally. So um, it, it, uh, the fact that it, that it, it connected 
the way it did, certainly from a career standpoint, pitched my uh, <laughs> career and life into a very different yeah. place than it had been from 85 to 91. Um, but musically speaking, I, I do see it when I look back. As I was clearly on a continuum of, of things. I had, uh, just going back, I grew up in Manitoba, and I lived in Winnipeg, and I was part of a traditional folk club uh, that got together on a regular basis. And then I moved to Stratford, where I still live in the vicinity of Stratford, Ontario, where there's a Shakespearean festival. And But I in the folk club, and there were members from Scotland, Ireland, and Wales, and Brittany, that... Um, Oh God, my brain just went blank. <laughs> I just came from a really intense call. Um, that it, it yeah, it, it, that really sparked. I, I realized the traditional music. You couldn't really be part of the traditional music or uh, without understanding the context in which it sprang. So then I took a course uh, of Irish history, particularly from about eighteen hundred to you know contemporary times, and. Uh, then, then as I, I I learned more about the history of the Celts, the next big event was in 1990 or 91 when I attended an exhibition in Venice. That was the most extensive exhibition ever assembled on the Celts, and and came to realize that they were much more than this mad mm. collection of anarchists from Scotland and Ireland and Wales, but they were this vast collection of tribes that uh, that fanned out across Europe and into Asia Minor places we now refer to as Turkey and Greece. So that that uh, really that that interest and that kind of license I was giving myself to bring in other cultural influences into the music and the arrangements, um, rather than just staying tight to the traditional repertoire. So that had already begun in '89, even before I heard about the Celts going east, but. By 90, 90, I guess it would have been when I went to that exhibition that that was uh, that was pretty foundational, and certainly for the next recording of the Mask and Mirror. Um, and I and also in those years, uh, in when I was in Winnipeg, part of the folk club, there were uh, there were some groups, Steelite Span, and particularly Alan Stavell, who's a harper from Brittany, <clears throat> and his band consists. He plays uh, more like a. a Celtic harp from Brittany, but his band would consist of a set of drums and a cello and a bombard, which is this this um, reed instrument, um, and electric guitar. And he was doing Celtic. It was kind of like a Celtic rock music. So I also <laughs> thought, wow, this is this is inc- this gives me the even more license to do. What I right. Want. It's fascinating to me how much work and research you put into the, your the writing and, and the arranging of music. It's not like like typically you'll hear of a of, of a songwriter you know banging away at piano chords for a couple hours in their own home. I mean you're traveling the world and you're you're finding you know cultures that in, inspire you and, and that's not a very typical approach of a lot of people. It, it, tell me about that that curiosity in you because obviously this must come from somewhere just beyond folk club. This is this is much more global in a way. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think it, 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 I feel my career has compensated for my lack of formal education past high school. I did aspire to be a veterinarian, and I maintain that I have the in, interior disposition of a vet, but, um, and I would, did go to university for three short months after high school, but then left because there were a variety of other musical uh, opportunities that were coming my way. But again, I've already lost track of the question. <laughs> <laughs> no, just about the amount of uh, amount of research and how it, it's informed yeah, your, yeah. your writing and everything. Yeah, and uh, and and that history is like this big jigsaw puzzle, and I had been um, infatuated or uh, by travel writing. And and I felt that this it wasn't really a conscious I mean a super conscious I think I'm I'm going to pursue my career as an active uh, musical travel writing but that's what it became uh, because I wanted once I went to that exhibition I said wow the Celts not only here in the northwest corner of Spain or in Portugal I mean uh, France Germany. Greece, uh, Turkey, and the original, you know, the, where they felt the the earliest Celts were would have been around the Russian steppes or Mongolia and thereabouts. So it it uh, I just felt oh I I love to travel I'll just have to go to these places where they were and just soak up the atmosphere not that they'll be and go to some museums or archaeological sites and and all that traveling and gathering up this multiple sensory information became quite foundational for me when I went into the studio because I wanted to go back and try to paint musically speaking or capture some of that multiple sensory experience and and point to the geography or the time through the choice of instruments and the idiom that they were playing in. So it, hopefully it all kind of stitched together. <laughs> you know, it, it sounds like being a vet would have been a whole lot less work. <laughs> it's, it's, it, in a way, it sounds like music just ruined everything for you. <laughs> Well, boy, it's it's been an incredible, you know, ride and and journey that I could never have anticipated whatsoever. And I think the other aspect of it all is that I've never had a traditional manager, so I've managed my career. So um, that's been another, um, yeah, uh, lesson. Yeah common aspect of the picture yeah i i want to ask you about that in a a little bit what i what i find is so really incredible about about you and 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 about your career is the united states is not typically known as a place that makes celtic music into gold records it doesn't necessarily (laughs) track traditionally speaking it's not the kind of place where you say well yeah that could easily go gold in the states and yet, yeah. and yet, it has, and 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 not just in the states, but you know, like you say, in in multiple different countries, not just you know, multi platinum in Canada, but but literally all over the world in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the amount of of research that you've you've done, the care and the de- the the deliberation over your your choices, is what ultimately connects? people because i mean to me it i mean it's all very traditional music and, and everybody has their own traditional fare but there's something else about it that connects in a really profound way well the best way that i've been able to examine or explain you know this international response Part of it is that the Celtic music in itself, um, on the most part, and I think 
even more so with the Irish, maybe some of the Scottish, I would want to pick favorites, that, that's quite infectious in its in itself, you know, um, that the world over, the traditional, let's say, Irish music seems to have, uh, and you've got the jigs and reels side, but then you've got these kind of melancholy, uh, but, but many beautiful, beautiful melodies. So I've maintained that I've been trading in a genre that has, that was kind of infectious to begin with. I think the second ingredient in my picture, because I've approached it as this multicultural event um, and woven together instruments and arrangements that are in less than common combinations, that there's something fresh and unusual attached to this infectious genre of music. <laughs> and then I think add in a certain quality of my voice that is also attractive to some people. And, and perhaps that my mu- my classical training has allowed me to bring to faux, it's a sort of a, a version of world music, really, um, where we've got these traditional instruments, but we also have kit drums and electric guitars, and is that it, the classical training bring can bring a sense of intimacy and dynamics to the performance that is less in common with this genre. And I and I see that too because the audience that you have is is very broad, not just in the in the sense that these are people that that you know purely listen to folk or, or purely listen to Celtic music, but there are audience members who are metal fans, who are you know, oh, yeah. you know goth fans. You know, just it, the the broad nature of what you do, I think, is really very very interesting to me because there aren't a whole lot of people that can appeal to a, a, that wide of an audience with such a different, yeah. on, in a different genre. Yeah, it, I mean, we see, we've see we seen it in the communications that come to us over the decades now. Um, you know, in terms of what people do as professions, everything from truck drivers, we've had different people of different faiths, we've had educators have used some of the poems I've set to music as an entry point for their students to get into poetry. Um, we've well, A fair bit of, the, of military people have used it in therapeutic kind of ways. So, yes, and 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 people who have, but will often have, there will often be, what is the term? They'll be their their musical tastes will be quite liberal. They'll be quite um, then often not locked into one thing. Um, but it, like in Germany, there certainly are some heavy metal people that come, and they're all in their black jackets. <laughs> <laughs> Your um your your list of achievements are, is just it, it's an, just an astounding list of things that uh, that you've been able to do. I mean, you know, Grammy Award nominations, a couple of Juno Awards. You sang at the Olympics, uh, Carnegie Hall. You sang in front of the Queen, and again, you're from a small farm in uh, in, in in Manitoba. I mean, do you ever just think to yourself, "Oh my God, I'm singing before the damn oh, yeah. Queen. Who, <laughs> yes. Who's responsible for this?" <laughs> uh, yes, yes. No, it's quite sobering and humbling all at the same time. I mean, I think uh, the, because I've chosen to manage my own career, my feet have never really left the ground from the standpoint of understanding how much just hard work is involved in in doing things. Uh, but the fact that there can be this incredible payoff of connecting with so many people I mean, really, that's one of the big things, prizes of, of life, isn't it, is doing things that have meaning for other people. 
you've mentioned the fact that you're self-produced, self-managed, and 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 a, and self-sufficient to the point where you own your own record company. I mean, there are so many artists out there who are who have become and have been so dependent and you know subordinated by not being in control both creatively or on the business side of their career. Considering how the music industry has changed over the last decade or or even more than that. It sounds like that really is the the only real pathway to having any real control and to being successful in music anymore is to really take you know control of all of it, not just not just the creative side of it. Yeah, I mean, and I often say to people, I like to say that I knew what I was doing, but I didn't. <laughs> it was more by default. I knew what I didn't want. I knew what didn't work for me, and because I had invested five years of developing my career. Uh, from 85 to 1990, I didn't, I mean, I uh, I was able to bring to the record company a picture that was already put together. I could Mm. finance my own recordings. I didn't have to borrow from them to to do them. I was already putting myself on tour. I had learned about uh, touring finances and logistics and contracts and all the bits and pieces. Though I remember when I when this project came to Warner Brothers Records in Los Angeles, and uh, I mean they were always they always seemed kind of uh, amused in in a particular way that this artist was was running their own affairs, but at the same time kind of nervous that something might blow up any time. Right. It felt like the, you know there were children wandering around without their parents, <laughs> and they, they for for a while there they would each time I go down there they'd set me up with meetings with prospective managers and trying to see if if something would click. It was like a blind dating kind of thing. <laughs> I remember the last manager I went went to see, and by this time I was you know I was selling in Canada and internationally and but I didn't I wanted I really really wanted assistance in the United States in terms of touring and marketing. Sure. And and I and I said to the manager or this prospective manager, you know, I wanted to keep certain parts of the picture for myself, but I was looking for, to hire him. He sat back and he says, if you think I'm going to work for some artist, you've got another thing coming. <laughs> and I said, well, that's all I need to know. I'm sure your other artists would be interested yeah. in hearing you see that. Now, I told Warner Brothers, I'm just unmanageable, so let's accept <laughs> this. And this, this is, yeah. But what a self-sufficient, uh, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy that is. You know, you know, they have to do things their way when, in fact, you know, it to confront someone who is willing to to take on all of that extra work and do it and do it, you know, in a way that suits them, it, you know, it it just shows how short sighted the entire recording industry. Yeah, I mean, they, they they weren't stupid though either. After because they learned how I had done this, uh, had achieved my success in Canada, particularly through public broadcasting, through university radio, through a real grassroots type of thing, and they they didn't miss a beat, and they set up all this kind of program of me going on these promotional trips in the states. But but I will say this: in in that era of time, it was possible to do what I did and come out to where I've come to. It would not be possible now. Um, the the framework of the business is so um, uh, harsh for the artists, mm. um, uh, the, and particularly the side of the commodification of 
the music uh, versus the touring side, uh, that it, it's just, it's, um, it just couldn't, my career could not have started the way it did and gone to the way it did if I had started now. I've, uh, I've, I've read a couple of interviews that you've done, and uh, you know, one of the things that, that, that I thought was kind of telling is your opinion about fame. Obviously, you've had some tremendous successes in your career, but you never went out with the idea of becoming famous. It's just, it was just part of the, the it was like the mm-hmm. occupational reality. Of, of It's a byproduct. It's a, it's, and, 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 and sometimes a handicap, you know? Yeah. I mean, you, you want to find an audience, you want to be heard, but at the same time, you know, it does come with a cost, not just, you know, to you, Absolutely. especially to you, you personally, and whether it's about privacy or, or any of the other things that, yeah, yeah. that you have been actively involved in. Yeah. No, there definitely is a price, and I, I think this goes back to me wanting to be a veterinarian <laughs> and never aspiring to be a singer and all that came with that. But rather, I love music. I loved, and I fell in, madly in love with the Celtic music, and it kind of led me by the nose. But it, fame had nothing to do with it. Uh, but I, and I remember at the juncture of the visit um, that I'd been, you know, ferreting away at a fairly grassroots level in Canada predominantly, and you know, selling about thirty thousand copies of my 1989 recording and putting us on tour. But when I signed with the Warner Group, and I remember doing this showcase in Toronto, and it was the old-fashioned ones where the, you know, the media and the radio and the retail and folks were involved, invited to come and was kind of a schmooze fest. But I played about four or five pieces from the visit. And I realized it was like the lightning bolt um, that my life was about to change. And I remember the person from Warner Canada, who's actually continues to be a really good friend of mine. He's no longer with Warner's. But getting in, he was driving me back to the hotel, and I just wept in the car. It was kind of, I real. it was, it was, mm. I realized I was crossing over a threshold and I'd never be able to go back. And, um, but, you know, I managed it fairly well, again, by ha- being my own. And that probably is one of the reasons I have retained control, not just from a business standpoint, but being, you know, aware of some of the perils that can come with with fame. And so I'm connected to this community in Stratford, where I came in 1981. And my, my career didn't take off for a decade later. So people, I wander around the street, and people don't give me anything <laughs> of it. I go shopping, I go to the grocery store, go to the, you know, bank. And, and uh, it's, it's a perfect, normal existence. It's only when I leave here and go on tour that I'm reminded, all oh, right, you know, there's this, this side. And I, I'm, although I'm grateful that my music is connected with so many people, I don't thrive in the the, the notoriety or the fra- the fame. I, I I much I relish strong uh, relationships with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has to be somewhat challenging. I mean, it's it's great that you've rooted yourself in a community with friends and 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 feel part of of a community that doesn't necessarily see you as someone who sold 14 million records, but, you know, maybe the lady down the street who I got to buy, you know, borrow a couple of sugar from or whatever it may be. <laughs> but, you know, throughout your, your life, I mean, you've had a couple of situations where, you know, you've dealt with some very tragic loss in, in your life within your, mm-hmm. your family. And, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to ask you to, to, to rehash that, you know, that, that kind of loss, but when you are a public figure and you go through that and you have a level of fame, it does complicate how you manage through 
things like grief and and loss oh, yeah. and you know, all kinds of you know kinds of things how do you see yourself managing through those moments when things can somehow you know become public situations yeah i mean there's only really been Two of those events. One was that uh, that loss of my fiance in '98, and then um, a handful of years later was this landmark privacy case in the UK, um, of which a former friend who was very, very uh, privy to the whole period of of that loss and grief and everything, we had had a falling out, and she decided she she was going to write a book. Uh. Um, I mean, how does one handle it? Well. You know, it. I mean, with the 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 tragedy of '98, most people in this community didn't know the the degree of the relationship that I had with Ron, and and it was only a fair while later. Um, at that time, I was actually protecting family. I would be uh, um, from from media who maybe coming into the picture too soon. Um, the the privacy case was a whole other piece um, because this had been a premeditated thing that I just learned about. And the the this goes back to that that fame type of thing and and, and, and and the fact that privacy is a human right for a very, very good reason. And people, no matter what they're with, their artists or whether they're politicians, uh, sports figures, you need a healthy uh, sphere of privacy in order to be a healthy, normal kind of person. And um, so that was... That was an incredible journey. I yeah. mean, we, we, we won, or I won that right up to the House of Lords when they went to appeal the appeal. <laughs> the House of Lords said, oh, no, no, I think we those, those judges before us have done a fine job. But, you know, you have to be able to stand up for what you believe and you think are strong and important principles. I think what's what's really important about this, we're not just talking about the the privacy of someone who happens to be famous or is a recording artist, but everybody's right to privacy should be viciously protected. Mm-hmm. Because I think you know, I, I know you know here in the states, you know, a lot of people just ig- ignore the fact that our phones may be you know, tracking our They're conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like we are you know constantly you know, being tracked by cameras or or whatever it may be, mm-hmm. and we take it for granted of what it's actually doing to compromise uh, our uh, privacy. It's like it, we're willing to forego a level of privacy to at least have fun playing Candy Crush on our phones. I mean, the, yeah, for the, sure. The trade-off is is it's mortifying. I mean, you probably if you it sound it's, it really does sound like you've spent a fair bit of time <laughs> of, you know looking at what what I've been interested or passionate about or professionally and outside of that, but I have very, very uh, strong feelings about the negative and un- perhaps unintended consequences of, of technology, and this is just one strand of it to do with privacy in that we've, we seem to not realize that we've exchanged our national security, maybe our democracy, caliber of democracy, and our privacy for efficiency, convenience, and entertainment. And and I think that the way that the tech companies have been able to infiltrate and f- f- uh, affect society writ large 
over the past couple of decades is, not, is, into my mind, not unlike the way fossil fuels did, you know, around the turn of the Industrial Revolution. And so, yeah, privacy is just one strand of that. and that, That's worth a whole other call. Yeah, well, I know. But during these situations that we're talking about here, the, the death of your fiance and then mm-hmm. and then the lawsuit, that's a block of eight years that yeah, yeah. you had to focus on those things and step back from music. Mm-hmm. What was it that said, okay, it's it's now time to go back. It's now time to kind of move forward. Well, to be honest, I didn't. I, I, it would appear to me outside that I stepped back, and indeed I did. I mean, the the, uh, the that event of '98 happened in July, uh, but two, in 2000, I found myself purchasing the building that I'm talking to you from, and it's a 1929 schoolhouse that that I I thought I was only going to do it temporarily. It was a, a beautiful heritage school that was made redundant and was put up for auction on very short notice, right in the middle of Stratford. And I I bought it, trying to delay the demolition so that the community had a chance to decide whether they what they wanted this property to be, because the school board was not allowing for that. In the end, as I said, 23 years later, I still have the property. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so the, uh, from 2000 to 2001 and two, that was the big uh, was one big project. Another big project was actually we set up a water safety fund as a result of that uh, uh, 98 event. That and I devoted the recording that I'd made in the spring of 98 to raise between three and four million dollars for this water safety fund. So setting that up, getting its charitable status, getting advisory group, dealing with applications and all that, that was. And then I think I started going out on the road about 2003 or four. I went to Mongolia, hmm. uh, passed through Russia, um, and on my slow journey to uh, the ancient muse. And it was just within the year of releasing An Ancient Muse that I learned that this book was coming out. And it seemed that she was writing it to be timed, to be released, to be able to ride in the coattails of the Ancient Muse. So that privacy case didn't come in until I'd already pretty much finished An Ancient Muse. And then then we were touring uh, while I was also, I mean, I I lived in London, England for several months off and on for a couple of years, right. uh, just dealing with with that. But I'm, I'm I have to say I'm extremely proud of that because it became a very important brick in the road for privacy protection, which I've now seen has that case McKennett versus Ash has been a very significant case in UK privacy law. So you know it all. It all comes at you through the course of your life here. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, uh, Lorena, uh, you know, vets don't have these kinds of problems. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing, you know. Until I get into interviews like this, I, I, it's not that I forget about all these these events, but they are enough behind me. And right now, we're we're all in in, in addition to this tour we come have coming up. We've got another one in Europe in the spring, and probably another one in Europe in the summer. But we're also heavily involved in civic things. Hmm. We've got Truth and Reconciliation Week going on here at the Family Centre. And then I'm also, that you probably would have stumbled on the fact that I'm the honorary colonel for the Royal Canadian Air Force. Yes, I did see that. (laughs) (laughs) So... I mean, and somewhere in there, you know, the the music happens. It's kind of like there's seasons for it or something. 
I know that, uh, you know, the tour is going on. The U.S. tour is going on through uh, mm-hmm. the month of October. And like you said, you're in, you're back to Canada, then to Europe uh, until the beginning of April. I mean, it seems like a very intense couple of months for you with touring. And this is the first time you've been to the U.S. in uh, in eight years. So this is, uh, or yeah, enough, yeah that's, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, we're, well, we're, we have lots of friends there in the United States and are really, really looking forward to the, them. I'm, a, I'm afraid in this tour, because of the peril of COVID still being in the mix, I'm not going to be able to meet and greet people as I, in the same way as I have in the past. And for me, that's actually, um, you know, it's, it's great performing and completing that circle of connection with the audience. Uh, but it's also wonderful being able to meet folks. So I'm going to feel very yeah. um, sad about that. But we're we're really looking forward to reconnecting with our friends. Well, you were going to be coming to the Boston area on Saturday, October 14th, the Chevalier Theater in uh, in Medford. Lorraine, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. Best of luck with the tour, and uh, and and thanks for spending the time today. Oh, it's been a great a great chance to speak with you. Great questions. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. Lorena McKennett is on tour right now in the U.S., and like I said, that includes October 14th in Medford, Mass. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, like it, rate it, share it with all your friends. Check out Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok for all the regular updates, and feel free to email me at backsatrock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. Thanks to ZM Home Buyers for their support, and thanks to you for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.